Will you hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark? They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Our children are now dismissed to continue their worship. Beth and I are grateful for the opportunity to worship with you today and to get to know you a bit and to help you think a little bit about what it means to make a pastoral transition and what wisdom looks like in that experience. In our story that we just read from the gospel, it's really an interesting account, especially when paired with James in the lectionary. And at first, I had to do a bit of head scratching about that. But then it came to me that perhaps the most interesting about this story is what they got wrong. So Jesus and the disciples and the whole world, for that matter, was at the precipice of a huge transition. Jesus was trying his best to help his disciples to understand what this transition was and what it might mean for them. And he described it as a betrayal, a death, burial, and a resurrection, but... The story says they didn't understand it and sadly were too afraid to ask what he actually meant. And by the way, not asking is almost always a recipe for disaster. But what's really remarkable about this story that struck me as I thought about it, especially in relation to the James text that we'll talk about in a minute, is that the real problem that day where the disciples were focused on all the wrong things... There was this looming change of the world literally about to happen and they were arguing among themselves about who was more important. So Jesus called them on it, as he should have, with a dramatic example of placing a child in their midst and telling them they need to be focused on something very different. But sadly, they couldn't seem to understand it at that point. This story when I read it, made me think of churches in transition, much like this church. It's on the precipice. It's actually maybe already gone over the edge. 
of a big change. In some ways, this is a congregation's version of a death, a burial, and a resurrection. So I began to wonder, what are congregations like this one tempted to focus on at the precipice of a big transition? Could they get focused on the wrong things like the disciples did in the story? What are some of the things a congregation facing a big transition might be tempted to focus on? I'm so glad you asked, Beth. Having been around church a long time, both of us, as a pastor, as an interim pastor, as a consultant, and so many other roles that we won't bore you with it, what we do know is that it's easy in a transition for a congregation to get focused actually on fear. We don't always articulate it, but sometimes we do feel it. (coughs) We know what was, but not what will be. And the fears of loss, of something valuable that has shaped us and meant something to us and unsure how that thing might continue on and what form it might take. And so sometimes we are tempted to scramble around with a burst of activity that appears to be doing something important because, well, we need to preserve this, right? Because it could slip through our fingers, it feels like. The problem is that doesn't leave much room for faith. Faith in what God will do, just as God has done in the past. And getting overwhelmed by the fear of loss or the unknown causes us to lose our creative capacities, to kind of dumb ourselves down. And if we're not careful, we end up trying not to do something new, but to recreate what was in a way that really can't be done. But we need to open ourselves instead with faith and confidence to the future God has for us. Now, we should celebrate what has happened. That's worth doing. And we need to remember who has led us in the past and what that has looked like. In fact, I would argue that you can't think about the future without beginning with the past. We need to articulate and identify those things that have shaped us and formed us and made us who we are as a congregation and have been meaningful to us and have changed the world. Because in a, in a real sense, that's the congregation's DNA. And we want to be sure that we carry that with us into the future, that it forms the foundation of what will be done through us as God's people. While never losing track that we have to do a new thing, and that God is the God of the new. Another temptation that congregations in transition sometimes encounter is not just the remembering who we were, but getting stuck in who we were instead of dreaming into who we will become. Getting stuck in the golden years, if you will. Golden years are those times when, through the graces of our selective memory, everything was perfect. Golden, if you will. There were few, if any, problems, and people and resources were plentiful. There's almost always a golden year story about having to put chairs at the end of the aisles. There were so many people coming to church. And there's a story about a beloved pastor that was nearly perfect in every way, could write a sermon in their head while holding the hand of a congregation member in a hospital room without skipping a beat. 
It's like the selective memory of our parents and grandparents and even ourselves. When we reflect wistfully about growing up years or whatever were the golden years for us. Golden years are double-edged sword, however. They can comfort us and remind us that things can be really good and they can trap us by making us imagine that we can recreate the golden years by doing the same things in the same ways. Golden years are great and we should celebrate having had them. But a congregation needs to resist being held captive by its past successes. They can almost never be recreated. I believe God is creative and stands ready to inspire a new dream of the future for this congregation. That new dream will not look like the old one. That new dream will not be the golden years of the past. It may well be the golden years of the future. I believe every generation of a congregation has to listen to the Spirit and then be creative with the Spirit, with God's guidance, making its own golden years for each new generation. One of the other things that we've learned about congregations is that whether or not we articulate it, there's a lot of anxiety. Anxiety, just in case you don't know, is never our friend. It actually makes us stupid, and as a congregation, collectively being anxious makes us all really stupid. (laughs) How stupid? Well, let me tell you. I once worked with a congregation that, upon the retirement of a longtime beloved pastor, was very anxious about the gap, about the interim and how to fill it as quickly as possible. So they quickly formed a search committee, and I kid you not, you can't make this up. Within two weeks, they were hopping on airplanes, flying around the country, listening to potential pastors. Now fast forward. Twelve months later, they call us. And they say, well, we think we need your help. We just fired our search committee. I said, really? Can you do that? And they said, well, well, we did. (laughs) Okay, don't worry if you're on the search committee. We're not going to fire you. But what had happened was that They had become deadlocked and hopelessly divided after about six weeks of work. And despite hopping on lots of airplanes and hearing lots of preachers, they were never going to agree because everybody had their own idea about exactly the right pastor for this church without ever having asked the congregation to give them guidance. So we started over. And this time with a thoughtful, slow process that dealt with the anxiety in a more constructive way, we were able to find a pastor that was a good fit. Anxiety is not our friend. It also makes things look simpler sometimes than they really are. We resort to simplistic thinking, black and white thinking. If we just do this, then this. And anyone who's been around a church more than two weeks knows that that is just not true especially if you've ever tried to be a leader. Congregations are complex. And this is the not, not the congregation that was here when you called your last pastor. The community has changed. The church has changed. The world has changed. God knows that the world has changed. Pastors aren't plug and play, especially one that's the right fit, led by the spirit called to be in this place kind of pastor. 
Anxiety also drives us to seek comfort and reduction of anxiety by doing something. The search committee has already probably heard a few of these things. Why aren't you all doing something? Anything will do, by the way. Uh, Anxiety makes us fear, and doing something makes us feel like we're making progress, but we often aren't. What we need is long-term, healthy communication, healthy relationships that give us a space to hear God's call. The good news is there is a remedy for anxiety. So I invite you all to take a deep breath in and let it out. And know that faith is the remedy for anxiety. Faith in God, faith in the congregation, faith in your staff, faith in a good, slow, thoughtful process, faith in your leaders, faith in the search committee, faith in each other. Faith means telling yourself and those around you, it will be all right. The future is in God's hands. And we say that over and over again until we really start to believe it. If the first gospel story today was about what not to do, then the James story is about what we could do if we're wise and thoughtful. Because the other tool we have in our tool set to help us navigate any important transition in life, much less the congregation, is the exercise of genuine wisdom. Wisdom can help us navigate the transition, but wisdom can also be a little tricky. Sometimes it's hard to recognize what's wisdom. In the story from James, we actually have... James asking the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. I have a suspicion that some of the people that James was addressing were claiming to act in wisdom and knowledge, but weren't exhibiting any of those characteristics. In fact, the disciples didn't exhibit a lot of those themselves. Here they were on the precipices of a new world being created through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And they were worried about who was more influential. Who would get the biggest pat on the shoulder. The next lines in this text in James seem to describe what was happening to the disciples in Mark's account. Perhaps he had it in mind when he wrote it. He said, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, air quotes included, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Sometimes the truth hurts a bit. Sometimes the truth and ego get in the way. But I think James, may, well, we may have even been thinking about the gospel text as he, as he penned these words. And reading these words now, no one could confuse what we just read for real wisdom. James reminds us that, that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's worldly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. 
Margaret Amer, a New Testament theologian, commenting on this passage points out, James does not specify what it is, but the community he is addressing desires something it does not have. This desire leads to conflict and a utilizing of worldly wisdom to try and solve the problem. James diagnosed the problem, telling them they don't have because they don't ask. Going further, he explains, you ask, but you do not receive because you ask for things wickedly. When a community desires something it doesn't have, I don't know, like maybe a pastor, possibly, it can lead to conflict. Because our first impulse is to draw upon the wisdom, such as it is, that we have from our worldly experience, James warns us, and not from above. Our problem is that we are tempted to treat finding a pastor like it was a problem to be solved instead of a calling to be discerned. Finding a pastor is not a problem to be solved. Wanting something and not having it is always a problem and can indeed divide us, and we have seen that in our experience over the years, and can indeed lead to disorder and every kind of wickedness. I don't expect that to be true here. But it can happen that we won't agree on everything. And so James tries to go deeper to help us understand what a deeper kind of wisdom might look like. So the wisdom that congregations, maybe individuals just in everyday life, need to practice is a wisdom that comes from relationship with God. It's first of all pure. Now we can't know exactly what James might have meant by the word, but I think he meant pure motives. A pure motive in a transition like you're facing or you're in is the motivation to seek the good of the body over the preferences of the few. Or let's say it a different way. The good of the body over what I want. Now I'm betting that everyone in this room has an idea about what they want in a new pastor. And I know that even among you, when you think that you probably agree or think like someone else, that even then there are differences. I think a pure motive in practice means holding my own personal desires, my beliefs, my convictions with humility and a little tentativeness even. We all don't arrive at perfect insight simultaneously. Godly wisdom, according to James, is also peace-loving, considerate, and submissive. Interesting choice of words. Peace-loving, yeah, we like that, okay. Considerate, makes perfect sense. Submissive, not so much. We live in a culture that doesn't value being submissive. It values being assertive, thoughtful, proactive, not submissive. We even have derogatory metaphors that we use to encourage people not to be submissive, like don't be a doormat. Stand up for yourself, we say to our children. Yep, there it is, written in Jane's plain sight, for us to wrestle with. Sometimes it is okay to submit 
to another's point of view, to entertain another's idea, another person's suggestion or desire. Not always, mind you, but sometimes. Because as I have occasionally been reminded in my own life, once in a while I could be wrong. (laughs) Maybe you too. James also says that true wisdom, the kind we need to practice, is full of mercy and good fruit. Mercy can also sometimes be in short supply in our culture. We, we can be merciful toward those who can demonstrate they need and deserve it, but otherwise we are much quicker to judge than to offer mercy. As this congregation talks and dreams and reflects together about your new pastors, a little mercy injected into your conversations can go a long way to producing good fruit. None of us have all the wisdom, all the insight, and all the best ideas. And when we hear them from others, it might serve us well to practice mercy instead of quick judgment. A little bit of mercy mixed with gentleness and understanding can weave a strong fabric of congregational life that cannot easily be torn. Finally, James says to us that we need wisdom that is impartial and sincere. Impartial and sincere. So here's the good news. I want to go ahead and admit that Beth and I neither have the slightest idea who your new pastor should be, or even the characteristics they need. The other good news is that we don't have to know, but we can create space for you to answer that question. To be fair, it is not easy for any of us to be impartial, and it will not be easy for you. All of us in this room have an idea of what a perfect or an ideal pastor might look like or what you've experienced, and we'd like to have that again. And it may or may not be just the right thing for this time in the life of this congregation going forward. And we can easily be swayed by good looks or sincere-sounding words or prior successes or a thousand other intangible characteristics. But along the way, we need to remind ourselves we have to be impartial and sincere in our work together. I sincerely believe God can and will grant us Together, a consensus and a common enthusiasm for calling the right person. So, in the meantime, you can hang on to these words from James. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Submit yourselves, then, to God. Resist evil. Evil will flee from you. Come near to God, and God will come near to you. Amen.